Stephanie Schaefer, and you're listening to the North Star Narrative, a podcast from North Star Academy. I want to thank you for joining us. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and motivated by what you learned today. Enjoy the story. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm excited to have someone on that I've actually gotten to know through email because my son has to visit uh, Methodist a lot. And so I've communicated with him through that. And he is Reverend Dr. Jonathan C. Lewis, and he's an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church and a board certified chaplain. He works full time at Methodist Healthcare, where he directs the Congregational Health Network and other community outreach programs. And he also teaches at Rhodes College and directs a student ministry at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. He's married to Maggie. She's an occupational therapist, and they have three children. So as you can hear, um, he is quite busy and is reaching a lot of different people. So I'm so excited to have him here to tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a chaplain. Um, What's the hard things about that? What are the rewarding things? And I'm really excited to hear him um, tell us about how he he listens well and hopefully be able to teach us a few things in that. And of course, um, health and wholeness. So thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so excited. All right. I see that you are a Georgia Bulldogs fan. Um, so did you graduate from there? I'm so glad you asked that, Stephanie. Uh, <laughs> in, indeed, I did. I am a proud alumnus, uh, a third generation Bulldog. In fact, my father graduated from there. His father graduated from there. Um, exactly 27 years apart, in fact. My grandfather oh, was class of 51. My father was class of 78 and I was class of 2005. And uh, in case you don't know, uh, we are the currently undefeated and number one ranked and two time <laughs> defending national champion University of Georgia Bulldogs football team. So um, yes, I'm so glad you asked that. I'm a proud alumnus of the University of Georgia. Wow. So what do you like the most about that university and specifically going to sporting events, probably football games? It's probably the football games. I mean, there's so many things I could tell you that I love about UGA. Um, obviously, it's a beautiful campus, and there's a lot of great programs there, and I have great memories from uh, being a student there. But the thing that has been the constant over my entire life has been the football games. I have been going to Georgia football games quite literally for as long as I can remember. Um, my dad and I have season tickets. I will be in Athens next weekend uh, for a home game against Kentucky. Um, that is the thing that started me at the University of Georgia and the thing that keeps me going back is is the football community certainly. Wow. I don't follow football too well, but I know enough to know they've been a pretty tough team um to beat. And I graduated from the University of Mississippi, so an Ole Miss fan and they're oh up and down. Um but Alabama's really down this year, even though they just beat Ole Miss. But my husband is a Notre Dame fan. We just had a really hard game to watch with Ohio State. I don't know if you check out other teams, but oh, of course, yeah. I know Georgia. Did they beat Notre Dame? Notre Dame in a national conference game? Uh, we beat Notre Dame like three or four years ago. We did a home and home with them. We played one game in South Bend, and then two or three years later, they came to Athens, um, and both were very close, um, but we did win both games, uh, for the record. Um, My wife went to Mississippi State. Her dad went to Mississippi State, so the Mississippi State Ole Miss thing is a real thing in our house. I often tell people who aren't from this part of the country, like, 
if you if you don't know about Ole Miss Mississippi State, uh, let me just tell you, it is a real real rivalry. There are um, there are feelings for sure. Oh, big time! And my dad is the biggest Ole Miss fan. He also went to uh, the University of Mississippi. My daughter is actually going to Mississippi State, the first oh, one in our her. family. Bless her. Yes. And so I was like, okay, I guess you can go, but I'm never buying you a cowbell. <laughs> if you don't know, they ring cowbells at these games like it's deafening. Um, but, you know, I end up buying her a cowbell, got it decorated, because that's the thing you do for freshmen. What you yeah, do. It's really hard to let her go. But that rivalry, oh, my gosh, huge, huge, yes. huge. Yeah. Anyway, football's fun. Um, but so is just working with people. And I know you work with people on all different kinds of levels, whether it's teaching or working with college students. Um, in the student ministry programs and definitely with people that you see throughout the day. So I'd love to hear more um, about why you got into the chaplain area and yeah, what's the most rewarding, what's the hardest thing about being a chaplain? Yeah. You know, that question actually takes me back to my college days a little bit um, because I really, uh, I felt a call to ministry when I was a teenager and uh, went off to college at the university of Georgia feeling that I was heading for of life in ministry, but really not knowing what that was going to look like. Um, I I used to tell people a lot, in fact, that uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew who I was going to work for. And so I went to UGA and did a religious studies major, basically, um, almost did a minor in speech communications. I don't think I quite finished that, but, um, and really graduated from Georgia, still like feeling the call to ministry, but not knowing totally what that was going to look like went on to Duke where I did a master's of divinity. And it was in my um, the summer between my second and third years at Duke that I did uh, a unit of what's called clinical pastoral education, CPE for short. And basically that is sort of the, the educational training and certification program for chaplains. And so I did my first unit of CPE that summer uh, at UAB Hospital in Birmingham. And that was really my first introduction to hospital chaplaincy. And, um, you know, I, I'd i be lying if I said I fell in love with chaplaincy that summer because I didn't fall in love with it. I, I learned a lot about it and I learned a lot about myself. But to your question, it was hard. I mean, it, that, that was a hard summer. Um, in addition to doing just sort of all the on-call and things that you have to do as a chaplain, my sort of assigned clinical unit that summer uh, was the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, where I was with mothers and fathers and brand new babies, and especially ones who were having a lot of medical complications right after birth. And so, as you can imagine, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't need to say much more about it than that for anyone to know that that was that that was very difficult. Um, but again, as I said, I learned so much about chaplaincy. I learned so much about people and what it's like to go through really difficult seasons in life. And I learned a lot about myself uh, just in that period of whatever it was, two and a half months at hospital in Birmingham. And so I left there really thinking, I, I want to do more of that. I, I want to go farther into that. I want to learn more of what I learned that summer. I want to learn more about myself. And so um, I went back to do my third year of seminary and finished my degree and then I came back home to Memphis and started as what they call a chaplain resident uh, at Methodist Healthcare in um, in August of 2008. And that was 15 years ago. And I've been here ever since. Wow. So what 
does a day look like for you serving as a chaplain for those that do not know much about what a chaplain does? Um, my, uh, my days now, I should tell you, look a lot different than they did when I was a full-time clinical chaplain. My career at Methodist has been really rewarding in the sense that I've gotten to do a lot of different things. And these days I'm working mostly with our sort of community outreach and educational programs. Um, I started as a chaplain and from the day I started 2008 until 2016 or so, the first eight years or thereabouts of my time with Methodist was full-time, 100% clinical chaplaincy at the bedside every day with patients, families, and associates. And that is really probably how I would describe the day of a chaplain. And that's how it was for me. It was all day long uh, on the clinical units, trying to find out basically where where can I be of most help today? Who Who is it that's here um, that needs somebody at the bedside, that needs to talk, that wants to pray, that has questions, um, that needs somebody to just walk through, you know, what they're going through right now in their lives. Um, and that was sort of the quest every day. And some days, uh, it wouldn't be much of a quest. You could find it pretty easy, right? That the pager would go off, uh, a nurse would grab you by the elbow, um, you know, I, you, you'd spot a distressed family member in the hallway. Some days, it's not hard to find exactly where you could be and could be of help. Um, other days, it was a quest. You were looking for it. Uh, you were literally uh, knocking on doors, uh, walking in, introducing yourself. Hi, my name's Jonathan. I'm a chaplain. I see that you're you know, new in the hospital today. Just want to check with you. Is there anything I can do for you? And you never knew what was on the other side of that door. You probably knew the name of the patient and how long they had been here, maybe something about sort of why they came in. Um, but other than that, you were going in um, open-handed, trying to be whatever it is that the patient and family on the other side of that door could benefit from. And um, yes, sometimes those visits, those sort of cold calls, for lack of a better word, would last 30 seconds, and then it was over. It was, thank you for coming. We'll call if you need us. And then sometimes it was, oh, the chaplain, like, pull up a chair. <laughs> and uh, and you were there, you know, for an hour or more. Um, so uh, so every day uh, you uh, you put on the badge and you took your things with you and you went to the units and, uh, and you tried to find uh, where you could help. I'm sure you've learned a lot about death and how people respond. So um, tell us something you've learned, whether it's parents that are losing a tiny baby, newborn, or an older person, you know, that's lived a really long life. What um, have you learned about pain, suffering, and death? Yeah, so much, really. Um, one of the first things that come to mind is that the... Um, the lack of control over when we die and how we die is simultaneously one of the hardest things to deal with about death and also one of the most important things to realize and find acceptance with. 
many people will be familiar with the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, even if they don't know who Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is, they have probably heard something about the five stages of grief or the five stages of dying. One of the interesting things about her is that most people now know that as the five stages of grief, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Which one did I forget? I've forgotten one of the five stages. <laughs> um, but most people know that as the five stages of grief, because later in her career, she wrote about them as the five stages of grief. But really, when she first did her work, uh, the first thing that she published was that as the five stages of dying, as those are the stages that people go through when they're dying. She did work in hospitals with people that were um, there with terminal diagnoses or on palliative or hospice care uh, um, teams. And uh, she observed that that was the five stages that people go through when they're dying. She later wrote about it as the five stages that people also go through when they are grieving. Um, but it really started as, as work on, on people who were, uh, you know, in the final stages of their life. And one of the things about those stages that people sometimes expect and then get frustrated with is that they don't go one through five. It is not a neat progression of stair steps, you know, sort of through those stages. Uh, the reality of it is that usually that is um, much more of a the path of a roller coaster than it is the path of stair steps. And uh, I think part of the reason for that is that every um, every single death, just like every single person, just like every single family, uh, everyone is different. Everyone is unique and you never know quite what it's going to be like for you or for your loved one. Um, and that sort of, if, if you've never thought about that and if you've never sort of faced that in any way, um, then that's very upsetting. You sort of think about that as this thing you can't control and this sort of unwanted stranger that's sort of coming for all of us eventually. The other side of that looks very differently. If you've if you've been able to, you know, do some spiritual work around that or, you know, take classes about it, or if you've been around a lot of death and dying people in your life or in your, you know, profession, um, I think a lot of people eventually get to a point of knowing that they can't control it and finding acceptance, acceptance around that. And then sort of the thing that before sort of causes a lot of anxiety sort of later can be sort of liberating. That like, this is a thing I can't control. And thank goodness that I can't control it. Because what would I do if I could? What in the world would I do with the power over death if I had it? Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, I know that's one of the things for me that that I have learned that I, you you sort of hear people say the same things over and over again when you talk to people um, who are dying, when you talk to family members of people who have just lost someone. Um you hear that theme sort of repeated and you see people in different sort of stages and areas of that realization of, you know, what, what is the control anyway? And maybe we think we want it, but, but do we really, um, that's, uh, that's something that comes up a lot, uh, you know, with people. And I know something I've learned a lot about over the years. Yeah. I was just talking with my girls the other day saying, what would it be like? Would you want to know when you're going to die? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if people think about that question, but they were both like, no, we, we wouldn't want to know. Right. Well, and something about you saying, would you want to know, uh, is what brought back to mind the fifth stage that I forgot earlier, which is denial. 
right? Which which in Kubler Ross's work is the second stage. It starts it starts with no, it's the first stage. Denial is the first stage, and then anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, um, and that denial stage that is sometimes the very first thing. Um, and in fact, that is especially with young people. You know, you're talking about you know talking to children or teenagers or college students. Um, for obvious reasons, when you're young, you don't necessarily face that very much unless, you know, something happens in your life where you're sort of close to death for some reason. Um, you know, sort of getting through that very first stage of denial of um, one, one day, <laughs> this is going to happen to me. One day, this is going to happen to, you know, people that I love. Um, that's one of the biggest hurdles, in fact. And, uh, and I think why somebody like Kubler Ross, who studied it, uh, saw that a lot in the very very first stages of talking to people about death. Thinking about death and the people that you've probably been by their bedside when they've died and helping the family members, is there a big difference between someone that you know knows Jesus and knows they're heading to heaven versus someone that doesn't, doesn't want to know, is not going to heaven? Um, you know, Certainly when people are talking to a hospital chaplain, uh, often religious beliefs come up for obvious reasons. And in fact, um, <laughs> one thing that chaplains have to contend with even sometimes is the uh, presupposition that because a chaplain is coming in the room, it must mean that there's bad news, <laughs> which, which often is not the case. Many times I'm coming just to let people know that I am a chaplain. We have chaplains here. If you want to talk to us, we can help. If you want to talk about what in the world God is doing in the midst of this situation, we can. If you don't want to talk about God at all, we don't have to. Um, but a lot of people, just for me to come in and say, I'm the chaplain, they say, whoa, the chaplain. <laughs> like, What are you doing here? We didn't call for you. What, what do I not know? And I have to tell people, there's nothing you don't know. Um, I haven't spoken to your doctor already or anything like that. Um, just the Just the introduction of sort of you know, the word chaplain, the thought of religion, the thought of sort of like talking about God or Jesus or Buddha or whatever it may be, um, you know, sometimes sort of puts people on edge. For other people, um, that's all they want to talk about, right? Uh, When you go through a situation like that, where if you have a near-death experience or if you have the experience of a death of someone that's close to you, or, you know, if you get a very grave diagnosis, um, you know, I think that's uh, that causes realizations for some people about, you know, sort of putting things in perspective and often um, exactly what they want to talk about are the ultimate questions. You know, what happens after all of this? Um, do we know? Can we know? Um, did did Jesus tell us, you know, is, is, there, is there something clear in the Bible where, you know, we can um, know what the path of this is going to be? And um, of course, in, in some ways, I live for those conversations. I mean, that's, um, it's, uh, love doing that as a chaplain. Um, I like having those conversations with students that I, that I get to talk to, uh, you know, those big questions of theology and of meaning and of existence. And, um, I've been doing it my whole life and I, and I still love to do it. Um, in another way, something that people sometimes might slightly misunderstand about uh, professional chaplains and what we do is that, you know, we, we are present and available and caring for everyone and anyone. 
regardless of what beliefs they might have, regardless of whether or not they have any religious beliefs at all. And so, um, you know, it's it's very important that a chaplain be able to um, to be present to the needs and to the person, even if, for instance, um, you know, it might be somebody who has very strongly held religious beliefs, but in that moment of, you know, medical life crisis, um, they might be very angry with God. They might be very, um, you know, uh, in that moment, they might not want to talk about their religion at all. They might have feelings that their that their religion or their belief system or that God has has failed them. Um, and so you got to be able to have that conversation. You know, you you got to be open to what people are experiencing, and um, that's that's a lot of what goes into you know the training of chaplains. It's, I mentioned earlier clinical pastoral education. Um, you know, sort of learning enough about yourself to uh, to be open to those feelings, to be able to listen to people, sort of whatever they're going through, and um, that's uh, that's a lot of what a chaplain needs to be prepared to do. Yeah, you put down on um, your form, listening well and listening generously. Yeah. I love that. So do you think you've learned to do that from being a chaplain? Oh, I, I, I hope so. Um, I, uh, I, I think that I have. I know um, there is a, in the class I teach at Rhodes College on pain, suffering, and death, um, we do a lot of different topics in that class, but we uh, we do talk about sort of spiritual suffering and spiritual healing. And um, we there's a podcast that I signed for that class um, where uh, a chaplain, her name is Carrie Egan. She's a hospice chaplain, and uh, she's written at least one book that I know of. And she describes her work as a as a hospice chaplain and sort of differentiates somewhat between her role as a chaplain and her role as a minister and sort of how it is that a chaplain maybe listens as compared to how a minister listens. And she says something like, you know, a a minister or an imam or a monk or a priest comes to the member of their community to say, this is what we believe and here's how I think it can help you in what you're going through now. A chaplain comes to say, what is it that you believe? And how is it helping you now? Or how is it not? And do you want to talk about that? And I think um, I just always like to use that sort of illustration with students when we're talking about you know, what it's like to be with someone who's in a season of pain, suffering, or dying, and how to sort of assess what it is that their spirituality is or is not doing for them in the midst of that season, and how can you listen well to that and, you know, offer any kind of comfort or healing or presence. Um, And there is kind of a difference in that way, um, sort of roughly stated between a minister and a chaplain, you know, that the minister of which I am both, right? I am both a board center for a chaplain and I am an ordained United Methodist minister. And depending upon who I'm seeing or where I'm seeing them or what I've been called to do, um, I might 
be in a room as that person's United Methodist minister, or I might be in that room as as someone's board certified chaplain. And depending upon how that is, um, kind of changes, you know, the way that I listen and I and I think the the role of what I'm there to do. Yeah. So you mentioned like God, Jesus, Buddha. I know different people are going to come from all different backgrounds and religions. You know, you never know maybe what is behind the door, like you said, what the beliefs are. Maybe there's none at all. Um, Maybe they're angry. And even if they did believe in God, they're like, no, can't be a God now. You know, so thinking, you know, because I think we both believe the same. The Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There's no other way to heaven um, through other than Jesus. And so knowing that, but then having these conversations with people that believe other things. I mean, I see you like you've got a really important role and opportunity, especially if you know, hey, this person's not going to get better. Like they're just going downhill. So do you ever feel pressure in that? Um, You know, what do you feel the Holy Spirit speaking? Does Methodists allow you to share Jesus if they have a different type of belief? Does that make sense? Can you find a question in that of like what you may struggle with or how you approach that? Right. The again, sort of the role of the professional chaplain is is really not to evangelize or to proselytize. It is it is really all about about care. And um, you know, I I also just sort of find in my own personal experience of you know being with people in the hospital that that um, that commitment to care and to presence and to listening, no matter what, is often what um, what speaks the most ministry to people. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of use in sort of chaplaincy training and clinical pastoral education. A lot of use of the the word presence, which I know I've already used a lot today, and a lot of use of the phrase um, not having an agenda right? Don't go in the room with an agenda. Don't go in the room thinking, I, I have to accomplish something while I'm here. Um, you know, go go in the room open and, uh, you know, able to receive whatever it is you encounter there. And I find that not only is that sort of the the kind of charge of my profession, not only is that sort of the, um, you know, one of the standards of care of professional chaplaincy, but I also find that that speaks the most care to people and sort of accomplishes the most mm-hmm. in terms of um, in terms of the ministry that I want to do, you know, as a chaplain. And so um, certainly when people, um, you know, when they when they ask me about where it is that I find God in the midst of their situation or, you know, if they, if they you know, want to talk about you know, sort of the questions that they have, um, I'm open to those and, and I'm available to, to do that. Um, but it, it has, it has always proven true to me that, um, the, the best way to care and, and the best way for me to be a healing presence with people in the way that I think God wants me to be, um, is, is to be open to whatever conversations they, they want to have. Um, and so that, uh, that's always what guides me uh, in my work as a chaplain. Yeah, because he's really ultimately the one that has to do the work. 
we that's can't exactly go right. in and convince anyone of anything, you know, so praying. So that makes sense. And I kind of think about whether you're a chaplain um, or you're sharing with anyone that there is, you've got to listen to the Holy Spirit um, because if the other, if the other person, no matter who that is or where they are, sees that we just have an agenda to mm. share what we believe, but we don't yes. care about what you believe, that's probably not going to go very far. And so I know that's where the listening comes in. When the other person feels like, wow, they're listening to me, they care about what I believe, that's going to give an opportunity that they're probably going to say, well, what do you believe? You know, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. more likely to happen. So, yeah, I like that. So why do you think just humans in general are not good listeners? Listening is, is hard by nature and for some reason. And I, I don't know if I have ever pinpointed what I think this re- what I think this reason is. For some reason, um, it's harder to listen than you think it is. Um, I I have a lecture that I do sometimes on uh, something that's called narrative medicine, which is all about sort of incorporating people's stories into their experience of healing. Just how important that is, and one of the sort of pieces of advice that I give in that lecture, which by the way, I often give to um, like future medical students, either um, like undergraduates at Rose College that are in a pre-medical program or even um, students that are in med school, for instance, at University of Tennessee in Memphis. Um, And I often tell them that uh, not only is it important for you to listen as someone who's eventually going to be part of people's uh, medical lives, but it's important for you to commit yourself to listening. That if you don't sort of actively think about, I I need to be sure and listen well <laughs> today. I need to be sure and listen well to this patient whose room I'm about to walk into. Um, for some reason, if if you don't commit to it, um, you can skip right over it <laughs> and, and just and just do very little listening. Um, and I don't know. Stephanie, what exactly to attribute that to? Um, I, I know for sure one of the things that hampers the ability to listen, specifically in the medical setting, uh, is just the busyness. Mm-hmm. Is is the lack of time and the amount of things that that a nurse, <laughs> that a therapist, that a doctor feels they need to get done in a day, the amount of patients they have to do, the amount of notes they have to put in, the amount of updates they have to, you know, record, that makes it hard to listen. Certainly our cell phones make it hard yeah, I to just listen. held up my cell phone. You just held up your cell phone. There is no question that those are interrupting us at every turn. Um, and uh, there's a lot of solutions I give to like your students that I lecture to about narrative medicine and um, sort of how to overcome that barrier. Um, and some of that too is, you know, sort of going back to this thing I mentioned earlier about sort of control and sort of admitting our lack of control. Part of that is also admitting that, you know what, I'm probably not gonna be able to listen well every day. There, there are some days when the, the circumstances are going to conspire against you and you just literally are not going to have time to listen well in the way that you would like to, um, the way that you respond to that is what do you do when you have the days where you can do it? Mm -hmm. Um, Who do you bring in to work with you 
on the days when, for example, if I'm a doctor, on the, I just know today is going to be a day when I, as the surgeon, am just not going to have time to listen well. But do I have a good relationship with the chaplain at the hospital? Do I have a relationship with the social workers or case managers or nurses on this unit? Do they know me? Do they trust me? Can I employ them to help in the listening task with my patients on days when I know it's not going to be me? I'm I'm not going to have the time to do that today. But do I know who can do it? And can we accomplish that goal together as a team? Um, you know, that's one of the big things. And so um, some people are being intentional to make yeah, a plan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, some of it has to do, I think, with sort of introversion and extroversion. Um, you know, it's sort of what your personality style is like. Are you are you a person who's um, sort of more prone naturally to sit down and sort of be the receiver? Um, or are you one who often goes in with a personality that wants to explode into the world? Uh, some of that has to uh, factor in to sort of how people listen. Um, but uh, it it is easy to to not do it and not even realize that you didn't do it generously when you put that because you could have just put listening well, right. but you put listening well and listening generously. Yes. So time is precious. We yes. don't have a lot of time during the day because, like you said, we're so busy, have to do all these things. So to give of your time and to give it generously is a big deal. Yeah. So I love that. So I'm going to put that in my head. <laughs> Am I being generous with what God has given me today? Um, or am I keeping it all to myself? Yes. Yeah, that really, really stuck with me. All right. So let's talk a little bit about health and wholeness. I know that you like to talk about that. You've probably learned a lot. So what what have you learned that has made the largest impact in your life to benefit your health? I just said something about this to my Rhodes students the other day. I think one of one of the most important things that helps my health, my physical health, my spiritual health, my mental health, is being able to help other people. Um, you know, going back to what I told you earlier, when I said I felt a call to ministry as a young person, even though I didn't know exactly what the shape of that ministry was going to be, I, you know, I, I think the what really what I felt as the call, even, you know, even at that young age, um, was that I, I knew that I wanted to pour into other people's lives and I wanted to help and to serve others. And, you know, that is also one of the most common things, you know, with, again, a lot of students that I work with, pre-medical students, students at UT that are going to be doctors or going to be pharmacists or going to be dentists or therapists. Um, you know, the thing that they put on their application is, I want to help other people. And that's why they want to be a doctor. That's why they want to be a pharmacist. I want to help others. And um, I know for me, that is one of the most um, consistent things that pours into my spirit, that gives energy to my body, that, um, you know, tells my mind, here's the reason to get out of bed this morning, um, is, is helping other people. You know, that being said, in terms of health and wellness, uh, you have to be healthy yourself if you're going to be able to help other people. Um, you know, the common analogy is the, uh, the oxygen masks that drop down on an airplane, you know, put the mask on yourself before you secure it on others. Um, and so all of that plays together. If, um, 
if if what we're here for ultimately is each other, right? If if what we're here to do is to make the journey possible for all of us here to to help all of us get to the place that we're going. Um, not only do we have to put that at the center of our of our lives every day, how, how can I help others? But you've got to be good to yourself um, if you're going to be any good to anybody else. And so, um, no, that that was a conversation I, I just had with some of my Rose College students on Tuesday, and certainly something that comes up a lot with my, you know, chaplaincy and ministry colleagues. Mm-hmm. And that might be the thing that goes at the top of my list. Yeah, and it makes sense because our Creator, um, I mean, He designed us to know Him, to be right. in community, relationship with Him. You know, and yeah, He wants us to be around other people, to point people to Him, and to love on people, whether that's listening well, um, just sitting with them and sharing with them, whatever it looks like. I like mm-hmm. to make food. I don't always do it because I, I put myself before others a lot of times, probably. But um, when I do make a meal and deliver that to someone else. I mean, that energizes me because I know, oh man, I would love for somebody to make me a meal. Like it really helps, you know, as a mom, a wife, you know, woman like that seems like a big deal. I don't know if it ministers to other people as much as I think, but that's one way helping, you know, other people. There's all kinds of ways we can help other people. If we put down the social media, take time to intentionally listen, most importantly, listen to the Holy Spirit. You know, what can I do today? Being attentive. One thing I say a lot is I want God's voice to be the loudest voice in my head. Mm. So I hear him, you know, and I think that's so important as you're, you know, you don't know what you're walking in. I love the the middle picture I get when I think about you knocking on a door in the hospital. What is going to be behind this door? Unless you have God like with you, that could be really, really hard on your own or you could really mess it up, you know? Sure. Yeah, so I love that. I love um, what you've shared and just the opportunities that you have. All right, one last question. So we've talked a lot about University of Georgia, Rhodes. You've got the University of Tennessee. You've got Duke. You seem to know about a lot of universities, colleges. Um, Would you, you know, as students might be listening that are thinking about college, would you recommend all of those? Why or why not? You know, what to help somebody along the journey? Because it's hard. It's hard to pick a, a college. Oh yeah, um, I would certainly recommend all of those. I, I had excellent experiences at, at each of those institutions. Um, I also did my um, I did my doctorate degree, my doctor of ministry at Memphis Theological Seminary um, here in town, and uh, that uh, it had a concentration in pastoral counseling, and I, I really enjoyed that program there. Um, and so it was it was really good as well. You know, every every college has a um, had its own flavor, of course. Um, I, I often find that Rhodes College students have really interesting stories as to how they discovered Rhodes, right? Um, Rhodes is uh, kind of a smaller community. I'm not exactly sure the enrollment. I'm going to say maybe it's around 2,000 students, something like that. Um, and of course, that's very different from the University of Georgia, which is 30,000 or something. And so I have deep roots with both of those and, and love both of them. Um, but certainly I think, um, for some students, uh, you know, the, the smaller community would be much more what they would seek and they, where they would thrive. Uh, whereas others would, you know, really gain a lot from being in a, in a bigger community. Um, and that might be sort of my, one of my biggest pieces of advice is, uh, is find a place where you belong. 
Um, I think there naturally there is a lot of emphasis on the academic programs and the grade values and the test scores and let me make sure that I get into the place where I can get the best training for the you know professional field that I'm going to go into. And I get that. I was I was a student once too, um, and and a high achieving one, and one who probably double checked my homework more than I really needed to, um, because so much emphasis is put on it when you're a young person. And so that's all to say that I get it. But I might I might tell students really the the place where you're going to learn how to do what you do with your life is going to be after college, is going to be in your in your jobs um, is going to be with your, you know, professional mentors. That's where you're going to learn everything you need to learn in order to, you know, to, um, to do your profession. Well, Um, your college years are going to be a lot about community and a lot about personal formation. And so, yes, go somewhere that has the major that you need that, you know, that you can put that on a degree, but really probably what's much more important is that you be somewhere um, where you can find a community that is going to nurture you, that's going to help your development as a young person, and that's going to get you ready to do sort of the real life learning that you're going to do after college. Um, and so if that's a place like University of Georgia that's big and has everything under the sun, and um, then absolutely do it. Um, if uh, if you feel like you would do better in a place that's, you know, maybe a little bit more tight-knit, um, and uh, sort of a smaller community, then then do that, and don't worry too much about the academics because um, I, I think you're going to find that that's that's going to work itself out if your community is strong. Yeah, yeah, good thoughts. And uh, seems to all center back to relationships, community. So yeah, I'm just thankful that you would take some time to come and share your life and your journey, your story, and I love that you are a lifelong learner like we encourage everyone in the NSA community to be. And it's so important to learn and then to make good habits. And we just do that one thing at a time. So hopefully if you're listening today that you've listened well and you will think about how you can listen generously with those that God puts around you today. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you have any questions for our guest or like information about Northstar, please email us at podcast at nsa.school. We love having guests on our show and getting to hear their stories. If you have anyone in mind that you think would be a great guest to feature, please email us and let us know. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming stories.